Okay, well, this is our last session together of this particular class called Being Church, the First Believers in Acts 1 through 15. So we've been through sort of, uh, we've seen this promise that Jesus gave to his disciples in Acts 1-8, just before his uh, ascension. We've seen this promise uh, come true. He told these disciples before he ascended that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so we've now seen this whole sweep of expansion. Um, The early church in Jerusalem has expanded beyond itself uh, linguistically, as they were originally Aramaic speakers, and now they've reached out to Hebrew speakers and beyond, potentially. I'm I'm sorry, uh, Greek speakers and beyond. They've expanded ethnically, where all the original believers were, were Palestinian Jews. Then they expanded to diaspora Jews, who still belong to the Jewish race, but could be thought of ethnically as having a slightly different um, background. Uh, and then beyond that, even to other Israelites, that is the Samaritans, at least they accounted themselves Israelites, and then Gentiles, total non-Israelites altogether. And we've also seen them expand geographically to these areas, beyond the city of Jerusalem, to Judea and Samaria, and now to the ends of the earth. We could have stopped last week, really, if that's all we were doing, um, because we saw by the time uh, Paul got to Lystra, where he was reaching non-proselytizing, non-God-fearing Gentiles, seemingly just Gentiles that had nothing to do with Jews at all, promise fulfilled. We could have stopped there at Acts 14. But... The church hasn't figured out yet, what does this mean about who in the world we are now that we have? You nosy there, Justin? I was being a little nosy. All right, have a good class, all right? God and community. God and community? You must have been, you must have heard somebody else. So now the church has to figure out, okay, well, we got a bunch more kinds of folks that are sort of nosing around the church. What does this mean for who we are? Uh, And is this okay? Have we kind of gone beyond where we should have stopped? Or uh, do we have to reassess what we're doing? So we get this chapter, Acts 15. After Paul's great first missionary journey has had such huge success uh, in Jerusalem, believers are going to say, let's wait, maybe we need to put the brakes on this, maybe not, let's see. So I wonder if we could read a little bit and see what we got going on here. Um, We want to read just one through four to start with. Uh, would anyone be willing to do that? This is on our first page, one through four. It's that first paragraph of text. Thank you, Deborah. Then certain individuals came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to discuss this question with the apostles and the elders. So they were sent on their way by the church, and as they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, they reported the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the believers. Let's actually stop just right there. So I should have broken these paragraphs up a little differently based on what I think are significant, like, good places to stop. So in these three verses, at the beginning of chapter 15, we hear about these folks coming down from, or coming up from Jerusalem um, to Antioch. 
where Paul has finally ended up again after this missionary journey. All right, let's take a look at what we got going on here and in my notes. Yes, of course. Here you go. I'm so sorry. Here you go. All right. So um, the people who are coming from Jerusalem are saying, what are they saying? Like, what's the content of their message to these Antioch Christians? You've got to keep the old law. Yeah. So it's kind of, it's mostly about circumcision, but it's also, by extension, the, the custom of Moses, it says here. Um, I don't have my Greek Bible in front of me. I'm guessing that's ethos, but I'm not 100%. Um, but custom or um, tradition. So you have to get circumcised. And according to the custom of Moses means, and by extension, keep all the law of Moses probably. So they seem to think that that is the sort of, that is the threshold that one has to, to cross into the threshold uh, and the boundary of, of not in this community or in this community um, one must get uh, circumcised. And so the threshold seems to be sort of coterminous with Judaism. Um, you have to join Judaism in a sense. Uh, a Gentile must become a Jew, at least become a Jew in terms of keeping the law and all the customs before they can truly be a part of the Christian community. All right, and so Paul has not been preaching this message at all um, out along his first missionary journey. And uh, this, we hear that this causes, this is like, this throws a real stink bomb in the middle of the Antioch church. So no small dissension and debate, we hear. And so they appoint Paul and Barnabas and some others, they say, to go up to Jerusalem and discuss this. In his own letters, Paul says that he goes up to Jerusalem for this particular meeting, he says, by revelation. Uh, they got a, you know, he got a phone call from God and went on to Jerusalem. But here it says that the community decides and they, they appoint certain members to go and talk to them. Now, on the way there, this is verse 3. They're sort of, you know, retracing in reverse this geographic expansion. So in Antioch, you could say this is the ends of the earth. This is beyond Jewish lands. And now they're retracing their steps. They're going back through Samaria. And then they're going to finally be coming back to Jerusalem. And they're retracing their steps, as it were, uh, ethnically and culturally as well. They're going from Gentile Antioch, and Paul, in fact, before that, was going from way even more Gentile uh, Asia Minor, where in Lystra, he wasn't even just reaching um, proselytizing Gentiles. They were just Gentiles. He was retracing from that, going back through where the Israelites, the Samaritans are, and back through the Jewish Israelites in Jerusalem proper. And on their way... um, Look what they talk about as they're passing through the coast along Phoenicia and then through Samaria. They're not saying, hey, guys, uh, the church in Jerusalem is saying maybe we got to get circumcised for y'all to, to join. Maybe we should find, get, a, get a ruling on this. No, they're just reporting the conversion of the Gentiles. So it seems like this delegation from Antioch has already got their minds made up about um, no circumcision required. And so all they bother to report on their way back to Jerusalem is, hey, we've had great success among Gentiles. They didn't say, we've had great success among Gentiles, but maybe there's a problem. They don't say that. But they need to go to Jerusalem and figure all this out. At least, let's get everybody on the same page. I wonder if someone could read... I'll just read it. It's short. I'm just going to read four through five, and then we'll get on to the speech. 
When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees stood up and said, It is necessary for them to be circumcised and ordered to keep the law of Moses. So there we get the law of Moses again, like Jim brought up. Now we have it, uh, as it were, made plain and clear. They do, in fact, want these Gentiles to keep the entire law of Moses. In other words, to become, culturally and religiously, Jewish, in order to be part of the community. And how interesting, which believers are this? Who's saying these things? The Pharisees. So isn't that interesting? I don't know if we remember, but if you cast our minds all the way back to right after they had to pick seven Greek-speaking, uh, Greek-speaking Jews to make sure that Greek-speaking Jews' widows were getting bread and food distributed, right after that we heard that some of the believers from, were, were priests. So people from among the priestly class were joining the way. Now we hear that some members of the way are Pharisees. And this is absolutely what a Pharisee would say. I mean, this is their whole, their whole uh, field of expertise and where they sort of plant their flag is Torah and, and what are all the traditions surrounding Torah so that we can make sure that we're fulfilling all the things that we're supposed to do. Um, so the Pharisees had a more liberal kind of reading of the Bible, so they often interpreted very kind of creatively. Um, they were finding ways to bring sort of increased piety into regular Jews' daily living by helping them live in daily purity, even though they weren't priests. Many of the priestly concerns about purity, I mean the purity laws, are really things you need to worry about if you're going to sacrifice in the temple, especially if you're a priest and it's your job to go sacrifice. Um, but you wouldn't necessarily have to be too worried about them all the time. And so the Pharisees were bringing this concern about living in daily purity as an intensification of piety into many Jews' daily life, making it more available for lay Jews, not just priests. And they had all sorts of rulings on how to do that in uh, traditions. Um, Pharisees would absolutely be concerned if uh, some Jews are running around saying, look, we could forget about some of the commandments of Moses. That is not what a Pharisee is interested in doing. They want to say, how can we intensify our adherence to the law of Moses to increase our piety? And um, again, we should say, this is not just like a knee-jerk, lifeless, dead legalism as much, uh, much of Christian theology characterizes this impulse in Judaism. Um, as a Jew of this era would, would have understood it, this is about deepening one's piety. Uh, this is a way to live into one's faith in every little nook and cranny of your life. It isn't just, you know, thoughtless rule following. Um, but these are some rules that are going to be a major barrier for people joining the community, like uh, getting an elective surgery that not everyone was interested in getting. So, you know, even though this isn't just lifeless, dead rule following, you know, we can't, that's, that's a mischaracterization, and it's not fair to what the Pharisees were up to. Um, Many of these rules really are going to be just an insurmountable barrier, right? If I'm a Gentile, I don't want to do this, probably, if I don't have to. And Paul's already told me I don't have to. So uh, I got some interesting parallels to this. 
So these uh, Gentile, not Gentile, these Jewish Christian Pharisees, uh, so as Pharisees, their uh, expertise is Torah interpretation and their emphasis is largely going to be on how to follow the ordinances of God and keep all these traditions. Uh, their concern about people going around saying you don't have to get circumcised is very, uh, has immediate precedent in Jewish history. Uh, not long ago, about 100, 150 years before this incident, actually, no, let's say more like 200, because it was about mid-2nd century before the Common Era, BCE, the Seleucid ruler, Antiochus IV, had told the Jews, I want y'all to live uh, in a Greek manner, I want, meaning Greek as opposed to Jewish. I want y'all to set aside Jewish customs, don't follow the traditions of your ancestors, instead live as Greeks. Um, and so some of the Jews in this era uh, kind of got on board willingly, and they were teaching. Let's, let's hear how in the first book of Maccabees, this is 1 Maccabees 1.11, how uh, that narrator of that book characterizes these people. In those days, certain renegade Jews came out of Israel and misled many, saying, let us go and make a covenant with the Gentiles around us. For since we are separated from them, many disasters have happened and come upon us. This proposal pleased them, and some of the people eagerly went to the king, the king is Antiochus IV, who authorized them to observe the ordinances of the Gentiles. Um, so, And they do all sorts of Greek sort of things. They uh, build a gymnasium. Um, they follow Greek customs. But here's the important one in verse 15. And they removed the marks of circumcision and abandoned the Holy Covenant. They joined with the Gentiles and sold themselves to do evil. Did that mean they took up worshiping multiple gods? Yeah, they, they were potentially worshiping multiple gods. We don't know what was going on in this gymnasium that they built, uh, but you might, you might have uh, sacrifices or prayers to various Greek gods in a normal Hellenistic gymnasium and other places. Um, so maybe they're doing the same thing in this one that they built uh, in Jerusalem. We don't know for sure. Um, but inquiring minds want to know, perhaps, remove the marks of circumcision, right? That sounds a little puzzling because circumcision is the removal of something. Well, so there was an operation called epispasm, which was partially a surgery and partially about stretching that could simulate the appearance of a foreskin on a circumcised person. Um, so that they could be in a gymnasium, you go and you exercise, but uh, you're not wearing you know, even a Speedo, right? You're exercising naked in a Greek-style gymnasium. And uh, so that means people are going to see, uh, and they're going to know, oh, that person is, is one of those Jews, and they have their own crazy customs, and, you know, there's maybe going to be some ostracization of them. Because um, absolutely, circumcision among non-Jews, among Greeks, and later among Romans, was considered mutilation. It's a it uh, makes a person who's been circumcised less masculine, and it's uh, taking what is conceived of as being, uh, you know, perfectly proportioned and just the way it should be, and mutilating it. And so, you know, some Jews were embarrassed by this, and so they might not want to be seen that way. And so we hear about in, in Jerusalem, mid-2nd century BCE, some Jews are trying to reverse surgically this appearance. The narrator says, this is tantamount. It's in the same verse. They tried to remove the marks of circumcision and abandon the law of their ancestors. So right there in the same verse, 
it's at the removal of circumcision that they're considered to have abandoned the laws of their ancestors. And we see those two things go together here in Acts as well, right? Uh, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, right there in verse 1. And then in verse 5, they must be circumcised in order to keep the law of Moses. So these two, this commandment in particular, was often sort of the sort of the litmus test whether one is keeping all the other laws as well. It's sort of symbolic of the whole shebang circumcision was, um, which just shows you how profoundly patriarchal the society is, that this is what everyone is talking about, um, isn't even something that applies to women, right? Um, that's not even an issue. Anyway, so these, it's, it's not surprising then that it would be Pharisees arguing this. And the Pharisees are holding a, they're holding a line that was decided during the Maccabean revolt when Antiochus IV, the Seleucid king in uh, the mid-2nd century before the Common Era, tried to say to the Jews, y'all got to do this, um, they, they threw, had a revolt. That's when they finally revolted against their Greek-speaking Seleucid uh, overlords and won national independence for a couple minutes before the Romans rolled in. Uh, less than 100 years, really, of independence. Uh, another from 1 Maccabees, this is when the king uh, Antiochus IV actually tells them they have to do all this. The king wrote to his whole kingdom, this is chapter 1, verse 41 of 1 Maccabees. The king wrote to his whole kingdom that they should all be one people. See, this is his intent, uh, making them become Greeks instead of Jews was how he thought of it. And that all should give up their particular customs. All the Gentiles accepted the command of the king. Many, even from Israel, gladly adopted his religion and sacrificed to idols and profaned the Sabbath. And they do all sorts of things, and then getting down a few verses later, and they left their sons uncircumcised. So this, to the Jews, was really the straw that broke the camel's back. This is when the Jews revolted against the Seleucids. It's because they were being forced to abandon the laws of Moses, and the customs of their ancestors. So these uh, Christian Pharisees, um, you know, Pharisees get a lot of a hard rap in, uh, among Christian thinkers throughout the years, and in the New Testament itself, too. But they're just trying to hold to the line that was drawn centuries before this time. Uh, there was a bloody revolution fought over this very issue. All right, so let's move on and see what gets said about all of this. Um, let's see. Someone want to be our Peter and uh, sort of prophetically hearken back in the voice of Peter and hear what Peter has to say about all this? All right. All right, Jim. So read the next section. Uh, tell us what Peter has to say. The apostles and the elders met together to consider this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, My brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that I should be the one through whom the Gentiles would hear the message of the good news and become believers. And God, who knows the human heart, testified to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And in cleansing their hearts by faith, he has made no distinction between them and us. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing on the neck of the disciples a yoke that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear. On the contrary, we believe that you will be, we will be saved 
through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. So Peter, (laughs) this is interesting. Verse 7, Peter says, You know that in the early days God chose me, Peter that is, to be the one to bring the message, the good news to the Gentiles. Well, Paul, in Paul's own letters, says, You know that God chose Peter to be the one to bring, uh, to lead among the, the Jews, and chose me, Paul, to be the one to bring the good news among, as the apostle to the Gentiles. So, uh, Acts, actually, Acts is very interested in showing that everybody is on the same team. All us Christians uh, were unified, and uh, all the important figures are basically on the same page. And so um, Acts puts Peter, who is very vocal and important, especially at the beginning of the Jesus movement, uh, during the actual days when Jesus was walking around and talking, He wants to show this continuity, and so he depicts Peter as the first one to reach out to the Gentiles, which maybe he was. Um, But it's interesting that Paul in his letters has a different way of breaking this down. Um, So anyway, so Peter, uh, according to Acts, has already reached out to some Gentiles, including Cornelius and his households, and so reminds them, look, I already told you about all of this, and you were kind of on board when I told you about it. Now, Maybe they hadn't realized it wasn't just going to be this one household, that this was going to be going on, and that we're, we're going to end up being eventually outnumbered by these Gentiles who don't think they need to follow Moses anymore. Um, so they hadn't really maybe fully wrapped their heads around what it would mean. But Peter reminds them, you already said this was okay. Um, and God, verse 8, gave them the Holy Spirit testify to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. So remember last week, no, two weeks ago, we talked about when when Peter met with Cornelius and his household, they almost have, in effect, a second Pentecost. All the same terms and the same kind of language was used to describe the coming down, the same verb, for the coming down of the Holy Spirit on those Gentiles. Um, And they also speak in tongues, and it's really a second Pentecost, and they realize, my goodness, the Holy Spirit has, has shown us, has drawn new boundaries that our community is larger, perhaps, than we even had thought it was. It really is the Holy Spirit that demarcates boundaries of this community um, in Acts. It's not some other boundary markers, such as um, Jewish ethnicity or language or even following the laws of Moses, so circumcision. The boundary is drawn by the Holy Spirit itself and God's self. God chooses who was in, shows, illustrates, that is, who was in this community. And, verse 9, in cleansing their hearts by faith, he made no distinction between them and us. So, this word distinction here, uh, make, well, it's really a verb about making a distinction, is uh, diakrino in the Greek. And so in the ninth verse here, God made no Distinction, diacrino, between them and us. Now, when Peter joined Cornelius in chapter 10, he was told by God, ordered to go and join Cornelius without hesitation or without distinction. The same verb, diacrino. That's how he's supposed to join Cornelius, without distinction. And then when Peter came back to Jerusalem to tell everybody, you guys aren't going to believe what happened uh, in this 
Roman household I was just at, the Jerusalem, council, uh, Jerusalem believers responded to this news with criticism or diacrino. Uh, that's the same verb again. So they responded with distinction or with uh, line drawing, as it were, boundary drawing. You could say that, as it's used here, this verb, diacrino, is really about drawing a boundary, you know, and who's in and who's out. So God told Peter, don't make a distinction between yourself and this household. The council at first responded by drawing a distinction, but later they were convinced otherwise. And so now Peter's saying, God has made no distinction between them and us. And verse 10, we hear from Peter, actually something that sounds a lot like what Paul talks about when he talks about the issue of whether Gentile believers really need to follow the law or not. Um, the way Peter puts it here is that the, the law is a yoke that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear. Paul uses this kind of argument in saying why you Gentiles don't need to take on the law. He says, look, the law was too heavy even for the people to whom it was originally given. And if you get circumcised, Paul says, you better follow every other. Again, we see the identification of the whole law with circumcision. Paul says, if you get circumcised, you better follow every other thing in the law too. But we haven't been able, he says, Paul at least claims we haven't been able to do that. We Jews. I don't know why you would want to take that on. So. Now, (laughs) when we think about Peter, what Peter does later, according to Paul in Paul's own letters, I'm not 100% sure Peter would have gone quite this far. But as, as Luke, the later historian of the church, who wants to illustrate the continuity and the unity of the church, uh, is putting together his history. Uh, This is the way he assembles this story, so that we can know that um, Christianity has has ruled decisively in this way. So would someone like to be James? Who wants to be James? We can... We can have gender-bending Jameses. We don't have to read, read only for parts that we happen to be the same gender as. Would someone read uh, verse 12 through, uh, through 17? All right. Oh, no, not 17. Let's see. James goes on through 19. He goes through 21. All right. So. we read all of this? Yeah, so 12 through 21. And can I give you this? Sure. Thank you. So do I just, is it on? It's on. Okay. Okay, so the whole assembly kept silence and listened to Barnabas and Paul as they told of all the signs and wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, My brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first looked favorably on the Gentiles to take from among them a people for his name. This agrees with the words of the prophets, as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the dwelling of David, which has fallen. From its ruins, I will rebuild it, and I will set it up, so that all other peoples may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles over whom my name has been called. Thus says the Lord, who has been making these things known from long ago? Therefore, I have reached the decision that we should not trouble those Gentiles who are turning to God, but we should write to them 
to abstain only from things polluted by idols and from fornication and from whatever has been strangled and from blood. For in every city for generations past, Moses has had those who proclaim him, for he has been read aloud every Sabbath in the synagogues. Thank you. That uh, citation that he, the quote that he gives us, by the way, that's from, um, that's from Amos 9, 11 through 12. And it follows the Septuagint, the Greek version of Amos, a little closer than the Hebrew version of Amos. So James, the brother of Jesus, um, next in order of age, we think, as the one who's going to speak up and sort of rule decisively on this. Um, look at the way he's, he talks as if he's the one who's going to have the last word. In verse 19, I have reached the decision. See that? So it seems really that he's kind of the leader. He's the identified leader, and he's going to be able to set the tone on this issue for the rest of them there. Um, so, and he and other early Christians found many places in the prophets, especially that alluded to Gentile involvement with Israel as, as proving that the Gentiles were meant to be part of this movement. Look at, how do, how do both Peter and James start their speech, by the way? My brothers, yeah. So this, my brothers, Adelphoi in the Greek, uh, we get um, Philadelphia, brotherly, city of brotherly love. So Adelphos, brother in Greek, is how these early Christians were addressing each other. And in Acts, this has been a term up until this point, this is, if an Israelite is saying brothers, he's talking to other Israelites. You know, especially a Jew is talking to other Jews. They're not addressing non-Israelites as brother up until this point, and including in these two speeches. So let's keep an eye on that, because this word is going to come up again real soon. All right, but let's see, we've got uh, Paul, uh, Peter, in verse 14, is called Simon, or Simeon, which is a variant of Simon here. So it's the same guy. That's the Simeon we're talking about in verse 14. Um, and here's a prophecy from Amos. And actually, there's a tiny bit of Isaiah and a tiny bit of Jeremiah thrown in at the tail end, but basically just Amos. And so, okay, we don't have to get circumcised. Verse 20, all they need to do is abstain from, that is, the sort of especially egregious sins, things that we just don't want them to do no matter what. Um, abstain from things polluted by idols and from fornication that is sort of the worst kinds of sexual sins and from whatever has been strangled, so that is unclean, uh, like meat that has been um, uh, like polluted in some way, and from blood. So the blood there could refer to eating meat that has blood in it, or it might be a circumlocution for murder. It's not 100% clear. And some people have, in this list, they've suggested this is, these sort of look like the commandments and the concerns of the Noah, Noahide covenant, that is the covenant to Noah, and the, the things that he needs to follow. And so Noah is the ancestor of all the nations of the whole world, right? So those things would be binding for everybody. Or um, let's see, another suggestion about what we might, where we might look for this list is, uh, let's see, the Noahide Covenant and, oh, now I can't think of the other thing I was thinking of. All right, never mind. So we might 
find this list um, in the Noachide Covenant, or it might be in reference to something else that I'm just not thinking of right now. Anyway, so they're really, he's really saying, look, we can just, let's lower the bar for Gentile inclusion. They don't have to ascribe to the entire law, but here's a few things that we just, we just need to hold on to, even for them. And so the mention of Moses, that is the law of Moses, who's been proclaimed in synagogues all over the world for generations past, this seems to be saying, this isn't saying Moses has been proclaimed everywhere, therefore they ought to get on board. It seems to be saying because of the uh, ubiquity of the law of Moses being proclaimed everywhere, uh, we need to let them know that they don't have to follow all this law. They, they may have heard all these laws, but we need to let them know they don't have to follow them all. Because he's saying only these few and then they're okay. So if we move on, any questions about this section, by the way, James's speech? Right. Christianity embrace. Absolutely. Um, and it, they sort of they touch on a couple of them mm-hmm. in this in sentence or two, but not you know they don't mention thievery and um, yeah. Um, they, so not sacrificing to idols, okay. And, um, <laughs> yeah. I just wonder why they wouldn't have had a little more included there. Yeah, it seems almost too bare bones, doesn't it? This list yeah. of uh, I I don't know. I'm not sure why they don't mention that here. But maybe that's what they meant, is they should know what the law is. It's been read in all their cities. But I would hate to tell people, never mind all of it. All of it. (laughs) I don't know 100%. Sure, there is some... um, There are some glimpses, both in Paul's actual letters and later in Acts, that there's a little bit of a natural theology. Understand? Have you all heard the concept of natural theology? A little bit? This is the idea that, like... God has simply sort of put it out there in the human psyche that there are certain things that are just wrong. In other words, we naturally know that certain things are wrong. Um, Paul alludes to this in one of his own letters, um, saying that even without the law, you know, you kind of, some Gentiles obeyed the law naturally and became a law unto themselves, he said, uh, by just doing it. Anyway, Phil? Aren't these things stuff you just would not do in the temple? Oh, that's possible too. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Things polluted by idols, fornication, what is entangled in blood. You're right. So all these things do touch on purity concerns in a way. And so maybe as Pharisees, and they're thinking of maybe the community as a new temple. Right, and so maybe the community, the ecclesia, composed now of both Jews and Gentiles, is, as it will later become to be understood at least, kind of a temple unto itself. And these are the kind of purity concerns that we don't want in our temple, you know, maybe. Yeah. Anyway, so, but he relaxes quite a lot of rules for... uh... (laughs) This is so funny that it is James, right? It's James who does this here. So James, the brother Jesus, and this shows, as Luke wants to show us in his history, all Christianity is a continuity and is sort of on the same page on these issues. And there's, you know, here's someone who is related to Jesus, and he's uh, the first kind of important leader of the Jerusalem church, and now Peter's had the same idea as well. And this is in continuity with the kind of Pauline Christianity we encounter, Luke is saying, that we encounter elsewhere. Uh, Paul says... (laughs) 
Paul says a different story, actually. So in Paul's own letters, uh, James is the one who comes and bothers his church. Uh, Peter, has, Peter has agreed. Paul says, look, I, I went to Jerusalem. We talked about this. We had a big council over what we're going to do about you Gentiles. And they said they were only going to give you a few things that you needed to follow, kind of like we see here. Paul, Paul says, I went back to Antioch, and then Peter showed up, and he was more or less on board, and he was even eating with Gentiles, which he wouldn't do normally. Most Jews wouldn't. And then he says some people sent by James came, uh, and they were telling a different story. And then Peter even stopped eating with Gentiles. And like, see, these people that James sent later on were... So in other words, Paul almost seems to propose a different timeline for when people came from Jerusalem to be pushing a more you-need-to-be-Jewish-first agenda. Um, Paul actually seems to place that after the Jerusalem Council, as if the Jerusalem Council seemed to have decided the issue, but then later they sent people that said a different thing. So, But Luke is writing a bit later, um, where maybe a generation, at least maybe a couple generations later than Paul, and he's trying to construct a useful narrative to show that now this has all been decided and settled, and... Maybe, Luke thinks, it wouldn't be too useful to talk about how there was a lot of dissension. So let's make sure that the pillars of the community, we have some nice speeches in their mouth saying, this is how we can all be church together. Um, Paul, he's writing in the thick of it, and he's still got to be right under his bonnet about this issue. All right, so then they write a letter. I don't know that we need to uh, look at the letter in great detail. Um, but I'm going to pull out a couple of things from it. Let's see. Since we have heard that certain persons have gone out from us, verse 24, though with no instructions from us. So Luke uh, and Luke's characters writing this letter want to make it very clear to us that it was, as it were, sort of renegade, hardline, uh, minority position G uh, Jewish Christians who were sending this message to Antioch. Um, that it wasn't the main group of believers in, in Jerusalem who had done this. Um, then in verse 25, we have decided unanimously to choose representatives and send them to you, along with Barnabas and Paul, who came from Antioch in the first place, uh, to, you know, to say, don't worry about it, you don't have to do all that. So, uh, you know, again, Luke is really concerned to show that unanimously the Jerusalem church is all for Gentile inclusion, and they don't want to set an insurmountably high bar for their inclusion. Um, really, the, the threshold is really who has the Spirit. So if the Holy Spirit is happy ex extending himself to uh, uncircumcised Gentiles, well, I guess they're part of the community now. That's, that's where those lines get drawn in Acts. Um, let's see. Okay. Um, so this word that we heard earlier, uh, brothers, this is how James and Peter both started their speeches. Um, this word, as we mentioned, has only been used of those who are ethnically Jews um, before that. Like a Jew is only going to refer to someone as a brother who's also ethnically Jewish. Um, so we see it that way in 1507, 1513, 1522. Um, but now we hear that 
the Gentiles are also the possession of God. So, so said James in verse 17. Um, and so says the Holy Spirit, we hear, in, uh, in this letter. Oh, not in the letter. Sorry, that was in Peter. Peter mentioned that. The Holy Spirit uh, had said so. So we are now going to see, starting now, and starting in verse 23. Uh, so verse 23, there's the word brothers. We're going to start seeing the word brothers in the book of Acts used, including situations when it's non-Jews. So this word that is, it's, this is, you know, this is a word that kind of emphasizes kinship, right? I mean, it's literally about family relationship, but more broadly can be about a, uh, recognizing that you're kin with somebody. Uh, this word that so far these Jewish Christians have only used of other Jews, they're now going to begin using this word brother to refer to Gentile believers. And so starting now, brothers can refer to all sorts of different groups. It can refer to non-Christ-believing Jews. It can refer to Christ-believing Gentiles. It can refer to uh, fellow Christian Jews or mixed groups that have various members. So this word that has been kind of a boundary word, we only use it in-house, is now extended to the other, um, even without the other having to become just like us first. This is a huge moment in this letter, just this one little word in verse 23. This is kind of a shift in how the community perceives itself. And it sort of took the two biggest pillars of the community, Peter and James standing up and saying, this is how this is going to be. And remember, God said so before that uh, for this shift to happen in the Jerusalem community. All right. And uh, at the end of this letter, in verse 28, the letter, again, raises the point that this wasn't any human being's idea to relax these, uh, to relax these rules and to to redraw what constitutes the boundary between who's in and who's out. It was God's idea. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit first and to us to impose on you no other further burden than these essentials. And it's the same list that we saw before. Um, abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, fornication, what is strangled. So in this little letter, it basically just repeats what we heard before, but crucial is this use of the word brothers now in the first in the first time for non-Jewish people. And then they returned to Antioch, that is Barnabas and Paul who went there, and also the representatives of the Jew Jerusalem church um, returned to Antioch with this message and this letter. And they deliver it, and everyone rejoices, and um, then, uh, let's see. Eventually, Paul's going to go up on another missionary journey. And we kind of have now reached the end, not only of well, this class, but we've reached the end of this movement uh, that Jesus promised, and we've reached it, as it were, uh, all the way to the community, not only realizing we're going to go out, increasingly out beyond ourselves, beyond ourselves geographically, beyond ourselves linguistically or culturally, even beyond ourselves uh, ethnically and religiously. We're going to create a new identity that isn't just an addendum to the religion we already had before, but is a new thing. Uh, and God is going to draw those boundaries. Not only has the community re realized and uh, enacted this going out, but they've realized it means that they are going to be different themselves. And this is, it's more difficult. You know, it's easy enough to say, uh, yeah, you're welcome here. 
um, here's, here's a list of rules and regulations, right? Here's how to become just like us. But saying, we're going to change. Uh, we, the original group, are going to change because you are, you are one with us and we are one with you is huge. That's a whole new... So now we have a new identity, really, being created here. You might think of this identity as, a, as being in the spirit. That the, you know, those who possess the spirit is a new identity instead of uh, just uh, we're Jews. We're Jews who happen to know th- something that other Jews don't know. So starting from this point, uh, Acts really makes a dramatic shift. It's already started because we had that first missionary journey of Paul's. So Acts sort of fades out of one storyline and into the next before it makes the turn all the way. But starting at this point, Acts is really the story about um, Paul and the, the growth and the just explosion of the Gentile church. And we're still going to hear a little bit about the Jerusalem church, but really this is what Acts is about from this point forward. So um, we've learned now that being church means uh, being someone new ourselves, going beyond ourselves, thinking about those beyond who we love and care about deeply in our community. Remember how devoted they were to each other in those uh, community summaries, but still always looking beyond our own uh, door or threshold or whatever it is, Um, and not insisting people are just like us to join us, which is uh, a problem that I would say that every, every group, every church, to some extent, continues to struggle with. Even us praying today for the first time, yeah. there's other churches in our that's right. community, seems like a prime example. Yeah, that's a great example. Uh, we could pray for those who are beyond our doors, and who don't belong to in our faith tradition. Yeah, I mean, they are in competition for us, if we think in a mercenary kind of way. Uh, someone goes to for Hill, Hill Country Baptist, they don't go here, and vice versa. Um, but we're all Christians. We can look beyond our threshold. And so uh, keep coming back to good old Aaron Cooker and the spirit and the other. But that's an example of our uh, Acts-mandated allocentric identity, uh, other-centric identity. It looks beyond the self to the other and loves beyond wherever we draw those boundaries of who we think we are. We continually pour love and care uh, beyond that. So, all right, well, this is sort of the end of this class. Uh, I have a short class today, largely because there were no, <laughs> there were no uh, pictures for this. And I have to get upstairs anyway, actually. So thank you all so much for coming to this class. Yes, Alice Jean. I don't know. I don't know. I've got to think about and pray about that. Y'all email me your ideas. Please do. There's obviously way more chapters of Acts that we could look at after this class when, we, when I start a new semester. Or we could look at something altogether different. I'm wide open. Art history. Yeah, I could go way beyond my... Uh, look, I haven't studied art history formally since college. I took like one class in high school and one class in college. So I don't know that you want me to do that. But uh, whatever we want to do, send me some emails and we'll think about it together. Okay. Right. Well, so Justin and I have decided we're going to do these little seven-week blocks. He's just going to keep rolling because he's just looking at the readings each week, but that I will do these seven-week blocks. I could, yeah. So, but I'm going to take a little break to kind of regroup and think about what to do next um, and prepare it. But yeah, so in the meantime, email me your ideas, and then we'll have a new ses- section coming up real soon. Y'all could, uh, y'all could join and see all the good things Justin's doing over there. 
or uh, one of the other great adult groups we have going on in the meantime. So, thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun, and I really appreciate your involvement. Thank you. Thank you. All right, better get upstairs. Let's start this.